Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 201 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the green children of Woolpit. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In the 1100s, two mysterious children appeared near the English village of Woolpit. They were strangely dressed. They didn't speak English. They refused to eat the foods offered to them. And most strangely, they had green skin. The green children of Woolpit have fascinated people down through the centuries. Some have proposed that they were fairies, aliens from another world, humans from a parallel world, or inhabitants of an underground civilization. Who were the green children of Woolpit? Where did they come from? And what explains their green skin? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, let's start with where today's mystery is set. Where is Woolpit? It's a village in the English county of East Anglia, which is a region in the east of England. Specifically, Woolpit is in the East Anglian county of Suffolk uh, in the southeast of England. It's on the east coast of Britain, on the English Channel that separates the island of Great Britain from Europe. And it's down in the south, though it's still north of London. Almost everything is north of London. Today, Woolpit has about 2,000 inhabitants, though it was much smaller in the past, and its local church is named St. Mary's. Where does the name Woolpit come from? Does it have anything to do with sheep? You might guess that, but no, it actually comes from the sheep's main predator, the wolf. Uh, Local people didn't like wolves preying on their sheep and other livestock, so they dug deep pits to trap the wolves. They'd put a carcass of an animal down in the pit, and when the hungry wolves would go down to try to get a free lunch, they wouldn't be able to climb out again easily uh, because of how deep and narrow the pits were. They made a lot of these pits around the village, and it became known as Wolf Pit. But the F and P sounds are both made at the front of the mouth. The F sound is a kind of consonant known as a labiodental fricative, which means that you make it with your lips by blowing over your teeth. But the P sound is a bilabial consonant, meaning you need to use both your lips to make it by cutting off the airflow. That, and then you have to reopen your lips to let the next consonant come out. And that means that in getting ready to make the P sound in pit and then the consonant afterward, the vowel afterwards, it's very easy for the F sound in wolf to get lost. Um, And at least it can be unless you're really precise in your pronunciation. And so the two words blend together. Wolf pit becomes Woolpit. And the name Woolpit is first recorded in the AD 900, so about 200 years before today's mystery. Are there any nearby locations that we need to know about? There are a couple, and one of them is the Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds. Uh, This was one of the biggest, most impressive, and well-funded Benedictine monasteries in England, at least until a few centuries later, when King Henry VIII decided to smash up the monasteries and take their stuff, their land, their money, that kind of thing. But back in the 1100s, the Abbey was a thriving location, and it housed the relics of St. Edmund the Martyr, who had been a king of East Anglia in the AD 800s. And in the 1100s, he and fellow King Edward the Confessor were the patron saints of England. It's often hard to do mysteries set in small little villages hundreds of years ago since they didn't keep a lot of records. And books discussing mysterious incidents like this often have very little information, which is not reliable. 
So how were you able to get sources to use for this one? Well, it's certainly true that a lot of what you read about incidents in popular level mystery books is just unreliable. And they frequently offer only brief, uncritical accounts that may be completely inaccurate. And I don't want to do episodes on stories that we don't have at least reasonably good sources on. But in this case, we do. There are actually two sources on this that date from not long after the event. The first was written by William of Newburgh. Uh, he was a 12th century Augustinian canon, as well as a scholar and a historian. He's known for writing the Historia Rerum Anglicarum, or the History of English Affairs, which covers the events from 1066 to 1198. The second source is uh, written by Ralph of Cogasol. Uh, he lived in the 1100s and 1200s, and he was a monk and later abbot of Cogasol Abbey. He's known for writing the Chronicon Anglicanum, or English Chronicle. These two historians provide independent accounts of the Green Children of Woolpit, the accounts are drawn from different sources, including eyewitnesses, and they are both from within a few decades of when the incident happened. So that's quite good sourcing for an incident in a remote medieval country village. Of course, later authors have written about the Green Children as well. Oh, yeah. Lots of later authors have written about them, but they're all based directly or indirectly on William of Newburgh's and Ralph of Coggeshall's accounts. And those are the two we're going to be sticking with, because in the last almost thousand years, lots of additional details have found their way into popular accounts. These are unreliable, legendary additions to the core historical accounts. And so we'll be ignoring them because I don't want to pollute the data set that we're using for this mystery or the listener's memory with unreliable information. So if you don't hear us mention a detail that you heard somewhere else about the Green Children of Woolpit, it's because it's an unreliable detail not found in the original two accounts. How do you want to lay out the facts that were reported on the mystery? Both of the original two accounts are quite short, so we'll simply read them, and I'll comment on them as we go. First, let's look at William of Newburgh's account in his History of English Affairs. He writes, Nor does it seem right to pass over an unheard-of prodigy, which, as is well known, took place in England during the reign of King Stephen. There has only been one English king named Stephen, and he reigned between 1135 and 1154. So if the green children appeared in the midpoint of his reign, since we don't know when in the reign they would have appeared, if we just use the midpoint as an estimate, that would be around 1145. William's history covers events down to 1198, or about 53 years later, so it was written within approximately five decades of the original event based on this. William had a reputation for being a very careful historian, and he didn't give credit to every tale he heard, including this one. Though it is asserted by many, yet I have long been in doubt concerning the matter, and deemed it ridiculous to give credit to a circumstance supported on no rational foundation, or at least one of a very mysterious character. Yet at length I was so overwhelmed by the weight of so many and such competent witnesses, that I have been compelled to believe and wonder over a matter which I was unable to comprehend or unravel by any powers of intellect. So William didn't initially believe the story of the green children, but he spoke with so many credible witnesses that he had to change his mind, even though he didn't know how to explain the event. In East Anglia, there is a village distant, as it is said, four or five miles from the noble monastery of the blessed king and martyr Edmund. Near this place are seen some very ancient cavities called wolf pities, that is in English pits for wolves, and which give their name to the adjacent village. During harvest, while the reapers were employed in gathering in the produce of the fields, two children, a boy and a girl, completely green in their persons and clad in garments of a strange color and unknown materials, emerged from these excavations. 
In England, the harvest season is around the end of September and the beginning of October. So that would be when this event occurred. The harvesters were out gathering in the fields when they ran into a boy and a girl. The boy and the girl were completely green in their persons, wearing strangely colored clothing of an unfamiliar material, and they climbed out of one of the wolf pits. While wandering through the fields in astonishment, they were seized by the reapers and conducted to the village, and many persons coming to see so novel a sight, they were kept some days without food. So the harvesters took them to the village, and lots of locals came to see the strange children. Although William says they were kept for some days without food, this wasn't for lack of trying to give them food. It was because they wouldn't eat what was set before them. But when they were nearly exhausted with hunger and yet could relish no species of support which was offered to them, it happened that some beans were brought in from the field, which they immediately seized with avidity and examined the stalk for the pulse, but not finding it in the hollow of the stalk, they wept bitterly. By the pulse, William means the beans themselves. The seeds of legume plants like bean stalks are called pulses. The children apparently recognized the bean plants as a source of food, but they didn't know how to get the beans out, and they tried opening the stalks. Upon this, one of the bystanders, taking the beans from the pods, offered them to the children, who seized them directly, and ate them with pleasure. By this food, they were supported for many months until they learned the use of bread. At length, by degrees, they changed their original color through the natural effect of our food and became like ourselves and also learned our language. So eventually, they learned to eat normal food and their skin color changed as a result. They also learned to speak 12th century English, which would be a form of Middle English. Uh, William didn't mention this previously, but they apparently didn't know how to speak English at first. It seemed fitting to certain discreet persons that they should receive the sacrament of baptism, which was administered accordingly. The boy, who appeared to be the younger, surviving the baptism but a little time, died prematurely. His sister, however, continued in good health and differed not in the least from the women of our own country. Afterwards, as it is reported, she was married at Lynn and was living a few years since at least, so they say. So they made sure the kids received baptism. The boy didn't live for much longer after that, and child mortality was certainly common in the 12th century. But his sister, the girl, grew up to be a normal woman, and she got married in a town called Lynn. And here, the story gets even more interesting. Moreover, after they had acquired our language on being asked who and whence they were, they are said to have replied, We are inhabitants of the land of St. Martin, who is regarded with peculiar veneration in the country which gave us birth. St. Martin would be St. Martin of Tours, who lived back in the AD 300s. He was a bishop in France, and he was a very popular saint, and the children said that they were from a land where St. Martin was especially venerated. Being further asked where that land was and how they came from there to here, they answered, We are ignorant of both those circumstances. We only remember this, that on a certain day, when we were feeding our father's flocks in the fields, we heard a great sound such as we are now accustomed to hear at St. Edmund's, when the bells are chiming. And whilst listening to the sound in admiration, we became on a sudden, as it were, entranced, and found ourselves among you in the fields where you are reaping. So they were tending their father's flocks when they heard a sound like church bells ringing, and they were so entranced by the sound that they lost track of where they were and found themselves in the fields where the harvesters were reaping. Being questioned whether in that land they believed in Christ, or whether the sun arose, they replied that the country was Christian and possessed churches. But said they, The sun does not rise upon our countrymen. Our land is little cheered by its beams. We are content with that twilight which among you precedes the sunrise or follows the sunset. Moreover, a certain luminous country is seen, not far distant from ours, and divided from it by a very considerable river. So they say that the sun did not directly shine on their home, and they lived in a kind of twilight. But they did receive some light from the sun, and they could see a nearby land that was over a river that got normal levels of daylight. William of Newburgh concludes his account by saying, These and many other matters, too numerous to particularize, they are said to have recounted to curious inquirers. Let everyone say as he pleases and reason on such matters according to his abilities. I feel no regret at having recorded an event so prodigious and miraculous. 
So William is glad that he decided to write the account based on what all the witnesses he spoke to told him. And he says you can make up your own mind about it and try to figure out what happened, something that we will be doing when we look at it from the faith and reason perspectives. First, though, let's look at the account given by Ralph of Coggis Hall and see how it is similar and different. Ralph writes, Another wonderful thing happened in Suffolk at St. Mary's of the Wolf Pits. St. Mary's, you will recall, is the village church in Woolpit. A boy and his sister were found by the inhabitants of that place near the mouth of a pit which is there, who had the form of all their limbs like to those of other men, but they differed in the color of their skin from all the people of our habitable world, for the whole surface of their skin was tinged of a green color. No one could understand their speech. But there's no mention of this happening at harvest time. But, as before, the children are said to have been found near one of the wolf pits, though it doesn't say they climbed out of it. They look like normal human beings, except for the fact that their skin has a greenish tinge, and they couldn't speak English, but they did speak an unfamiliar language. When they were brought as curiosities to the house of a certain knight, Sir Richard of Calney, at Wykes, they wept bitterly. So they were, t they were taken to the village, and Ralph is more specific about where they were taken, to the house of a local knight named Sir Richard de Calney, which would make sense since he was a local authority figure. And when they were taken there, the children, being children, were afraid and alone among strangers, and so they cried. Bread and other victuals were set before them, but they would touch none of them, though they were tormented by great hunger, as the girl afterwards acknowledged. At length, when some beans just cut with their stalks were brought into the house, they made signs with great avidity that they should be given to them. So again, the children wouldn't eat any of the food they were provided, but they recognized freshly cut beans as a source of food and indicated they wanted those, but they didn't know how to get the beans out of the plant. When they were brought, they opened the stalks instead of the pods, thinking the beans were in the hollow of them. But not finding them there, they began to weep anew. When those who were present saw this, they opened the pods and showed them the naked beans. They fed on these with delight, and for a long time tasted no other food. But the implication is they did eventually start eating other food. The boy, however, was always languid and depressed, and he died within a short time. The girl enjoyed continual good health, and becoming accustomed to various kinds of food, lost completely that green color, and gradually recovered the sanguine habit of her entire body. As before, the boy ended up dying early, still in childhood, and this account adds the detail that he was lethargic. But the girl was in good health, she learned to eat other kinds of food, and her skin gradually lost its greenish color and returned to a normal pinkish or sanguine color. Sanguis is the Latin word for blood, so her blood started providing color to her skin the way it normally does for people who are of European ancestry. She was afterwards regenerated by the labor of holy baptism and lived for many years in the service of that knight, as I have frequently heard from him and his family, and was rather loose and wanton in her conduct. Here, it's just the girl who was baptized. In this account, the boy apparently didn't live long enough to be baptized. She afterwards worked as a household servant of the knight, Sir Richard de Calney. No mention is made of her getting married one way or the other. And Ralph reveals who his sources were. It was Sir Richard de Calney himself, as well as his family. So eyewitnesses and acquaintances of the girl. This creates a question about when the children first appeared. William of Newburgh had said that it was during the reign of King Stephen, which would put it between 1135 and 1154. But if Sir Richard de Calney was an adult knight at the time, he would have had to have been born around 1110. And Ralph of Coggeshall reportedly wrote his account of the Green Children in the year 1200. And Sir Richard would have had to have been 90 years old then, which is a very unlikely age for a medieval knight to survive to. So if Richard de Calney was alive to be interviewed in 1200, the children may have appeared sometime after William of Newburgh said, such as during the reign of King Henry II, King Stephen's successor. On the other hand, if Ralph of Coggeshall 
interviewed Sir Richard and his family some years earlier, the children might have appeared in King Stephen's reign. In any event, Ralph says that the girl grew up to be rather loose and wanton in her conduct, which is unfortunate. Being frequently asked about the people of her country, she asserted that the inhabitants and all they had in that country were of a green color, and that they saw no sun, but enjoyed a degree of light like what is after sunset. As in the other account, the girls said that they came from a place that was shadowy without a lot of direct sunlight. There is no mention of its name or a connection with St. Martin. And there is no mention of a nearby fully sunlit place that could be seen over a river. But she also said that the other people from where she was from were also of a greenish color, which is something new, a new detail. Being asked how she came into this country with the aforesaid boy, she replied that as they were following their flocks, they came to a certain cavern, on entering which they heard a delightful sound of bells. Ravished by whose sweetness, they went for a long time wandering on through the cavern until they came to its mouth. This is very much the same as the other account where they were in their own land following their flocks when they heard the musical sound of bells ringing. They follow the sound and are led to Woolpit. The difference in this case is that there's the mention of a cave. They heard the bells after they entered the cave and they wandered for a long time and apparently came out a different entrance of the cave. When they came out of it, they were struck senseless by the excessive light of the sun and the unusual temperature of the air, and they thus lay for a long time. Being terrified by the noise of those who came on them, they wished to fly, but they could not find the entrance of the cavern before they were caught. So it was sunnier and hotter than when they went in the cave and they laid down. When they heard the sound of people coming for toward them, they wanted to run, but they couldn't find the entrance of the cave before they were caught and taken to Sir Richard de Calney's residence. And those are the basic facts as recorded in the two surviving historical accounts of the incident. As we mentioned, you'll find other details in more recent accounts, but those are legendary accretions, and we won't be going into them to avoid polluting the data set on this mystery as well as polluting the listener's memory with false information. We can now turn to figuring out what actually happened. And before we get to that, we do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Zachary R., Philip H., Jackford K., Denise L., and David J., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the green children of Woolpit? One theory is that the story is pure folklore and nothing like this ever happened. A variant on the theory is that this story is a kind of coded folklore. Then there are the more exotic views, that the children were fairies, that they're aliens, or that they're from a parallel world. Finally, there's the view that they were from this world, either from an underground civilization or from somewhere on the surface. So what can we say about the green children of Woolpit from the reason perspective? What about the folklore theory that nothing like this ever happened? Legends of things that never happened certainly exist, and that would be a logical explanation in many undocumented situations that were only recorded long after the fact, especially if it's about something that sounds completely unbelievable. But in this case, we have two early sources, and Ralph of Cogasol interviewed eyewitnesses, people who knew the Green Children, like Sir Richard de Calney and his family. That's not a legend whose source is unknown. It's a case of eyewitness testimony. Now, Sir Richard and his family could have been lying, in which case this would be a hoax, and people do sometimes perpetrate hoaxes, but there's no reason to suppose that it was a hoax if we can come up with a reasonable explanation for what happened. What about the idea that this was coded folklore? What's that supposed to mean? 
The basic idea is that the story is not historical, but allegorical, and the children are symbolic of ethnic groups in 12th century England. I'll let Wikipedia explain. Jeffrey Jerome Cohen proposes that the story is about racial difference and allows William of Newburgh to write obliquely about the Welsh. The Green Children are a memory of England's past and the conquest of the indigenous Britons by the Anglo-Saxons, followed by the Norman invasion. William of Newburgh reluctantly includes the story of the Green Children in his account of a largely unified England. According to Cohen, the Green Children represent a dual intrusion into William's unified vision of England. On one hand, they are a reminder of the ethnic and cultural differences between Normans and Anglo-Saxons. But the children also embody the earlier inhabitants of the British Isles, the Welsh and Irish and Scots, who had been forcibly Anglicized. The Green Children resurface another story that William had been unable to tell, one in which English pan-insular dominion becomes a troubled assumption rather than a foregone conclusion. The boy in particular who dies rather than become assimilated represents an adjacent world that cannot be annexed, an otherness that will perish to endure. I find this theory to be extremely unlikely. Uh, while there have been occasions in history where people living under a tyrannical state were forced to use coded fiction as a way of communicating politically subversive ideas, I don't see evidence for that in this case. Overall, the theory has the odor of contemporary postmodern academic obsessing about cultural identity and the rivers of ink that have been spilled in publishing academic nonsense on this topic. In fact, the book in which Cohen's essay appears is a small print run book from an academic publisher. And the name of the book tells you kind of what you need to know. It's called Cultural Diversity in the British Middle Ages, Archipelago Island, England. So we should be on the alert for postmodern academic nonsense in analyzing William of Newburgh's account in this case. Oh, and this story is set on the wrong side of England to be about the Welsh. It does not appear to be a coded political fiction, and it says more about today's cultural identity obsessions, where you have to look for coded messages about race and ethnicity in everything. But as Sigmund Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, and sometimes a story about green children is just a story about green children. This story is not presented as fiction, but as history, and it appears in two works of a historical nature. And it isn't just an incident related by William of Newburgh. It's independently corroborated by Ralph Cogasol, who says he got it directly from eyewitnesses. So I think the coded folklore theory is bunk. What about the more exotic explanations? Could the green children have been aliens? Because it's always aliens. Or what about the fact that they said they came from a twilight world? It's been proposed that they may have come from a world that's tidally locked with respect to its sun, so that one side of the planet is always light and the other is always dark. That would result in one side being extremely hot and the other being extremely cold. But there could be a twilight zone between the two halves where the temperatures would be moderate and they might be more suitable for life. But that's not what the children described. They said that the sun, not a sun, but the sun, didn't shine much on their land. And they said that there was a nearby fully sunlit land across a river and that they got to Woolpit by walking there. Uh, based on what they said, they were not describing a tidally locked planet some in some other solar system, but a place on Earth that was within walking distance of Woolpit. What about the unusual color of their skin? Could that be evidence they were aliens? Despite the it's always aliens instincts of many modern authors and despite the trope of little green men, this idea is extremely unlikely. The unusual color of their skin went away after their diet changed, and the mere fact that they were able to eat terrestrial food suggests they were humans, because creatures from another world might not be able to do that. The fact their bodies looked human without any apparent deformities strongly indicates that they were human. It 
would be very improbable that creatures on another planet would look physically identical to humans. And the fact they were able to learn to speak English is another sign because aliens would have an alien vocal tract that likely couldn't make the same sounds that are found in Earth languages. Um, also, the children said that they came from a Christian land where people venerated St. Martin of Tours. That's not a description of another planet. So the evidence points away from them being extraterrestrial. Could the children have been fairies? And why would anyone think that they were ordinary sized children and didn't have wings or anything? Current fairy iconography depicts them as tiny creatures that have wings, like the Cottingley fairies we discussed back in episode 109. But we'll have uh, future episodes in which we discuss other aspects of historical fairy lore, which can be very different. Often, fairies were held to be physically indistinguishable from regular humans. They might be more attractive or dressed differently, but they could pass for human beings and often interacted with them, such as by stealing human children and leaving fairy children known as changelings in their place. So you could propose that the green children of Woolpit were effectively changelings. Uh, even if they hadn't been sent to replace human children, they could have been fairy children who wandered into the human world and got caught before they could get back. What would the evidence say about that? Aside from the question of, you know, whether fairies exist, which we will discuss in future episodes, there's the fact that they came from a land that was Christian where St. Martin of Tours was venerated. And that suggests the human world, though in fairy lore, there have been reports of fairies who were interested in the Christian faith. But I don't think we need to go to the fairy hypothesis unless it turns out there isn't another better explanation. What about the idea they came from a parallel world? It would have to be a pretty close parallel world if it had Christianity and St. Martin of Tours, and if it had biological humans who were fully human and could eat human food. But the children still said they got to Woolpit by walking, and it's hypothetically possible they could have walked through some kind of interdimensional portal if parallel worlds and if interdimensional portals exist. But once again, we don't need to go to that hypothesis if we can find a reasonable conventional explanation. That would leave us with the green children coming from Earth. Could they have come from an underground civilization? It would be really cool if they had, and it might explain a number of things. It could, for example, explain their unusual skin color. If they were dwelling underground, they wouldn't get direct sunlight, and they might be very pale, resulting in them appearing as greenish. In this case, it wouldn't necessarily be their new diet, but their new exposure to sunlight that changed their appearance. And it could explain why they were able to see a nearby land that did get direct sunlight if they were looking through one of the openings to the surface world. It could even explain how their people were Christian and venerated St. Martin if there had been contact with Christian missionaries. What problems are there with this theory? Well, first, the kids didn't say that they lived underground. They said that they were in fields tending their father's flocks when they got lost, indicating they were on the surface. In Ralph of Cogasol's account, the girl said that while on the surface, they found a cave and wandered around in it for a while before coming out again onto the surface. She didn't report them living underground. Second, there are no records of English missionaries having contact with an underground civilization and evangelizing them, as cool as that would be. And thirdly, and most fundamentally, there were no underground civilizations in Great Britain. With all the geological surveys and seismic mapping that we've done in the last century, any such civilization or its remains would have been found, and there's been nothing like that discovered. So I don't think that the idea of the children came from an underground civilization in England is plausible. That would leave us with them coming from the surface, in which case we need to explain a bunch of things. So we need to explain their skin color, their language, how they came to Woolpit, the lack of sunlight in their homeland, and where St. Martin's Land would be. 
So how can we explain all these? We don't necessarily need to explain all of them. The two accounts we have are based on oral history, and it could be that some of the details have been misreported or that the children whose knowledge of English was imperfect at first could have miscommunicated or been misunderstood when they described their homeland. But as we'll see, we can certainly explain most of these details. Then let's start with St. Martin's Land. Where was that? Most likely, it was the town of Fornham, just eight miles away. Fornham is even smaller than Woolpit, with only 1,300 inhabitants today, though I don't know how many people live there in the 1100s. The Old English word forne means trout, as in the kind of trout that you fish for. Ham means village, so Fornham means trout village. And guess what the village church was named in Fornham? It was St. Martin's. In fact, the full name of the village today is Fornham St. Martin. So the children would have indeed been correct in reporting that they came from a Christian area where St. Martin was specially venerated. What about the lack of sunlight and the twilight they said prevailed where they were from? This could be a detail that was miscommunicated, misunderstood, or otherwise misreported. Also, by the time the children learned English and had been objects of curiosity for so long, they may have decided to embellish their tale as a joke on the adults. But it's also possible that there was a natural explanation. Perhaps the children grew up in a wooded area that didn't get a lot of direct sunlight. That could explain why they said their own area was shaded, but they could see a nearby area across a river that was fully lit. And there is a river that runs by Fornham St. Martin. It's called the River Lark. How would we then explain how the children got from Fornham St. Martin to Woolpit? In basically a straightforward way, they were in the fields outside Fornham St. Martin tending their father's flocks when they heard church bells ringing. In William of Newburgh's account, the children said that it reminded them of the bells of Bury St. Edmund's Abbey, which they could hear from Woolpit. William of Newburgh estimated that Woolpit is four or five miles away from the Abbey. Now, it's actually seven miles from the center of Woolpit to the Abbey, but it would be a lot closer from the near side of the village. And yes, you can hear loud church bells at that distance. I, I checked. But here's the interesting thing. The center of Fornham St. Martin is just two and a half miles north of the Abbey. So you could hear the bells of Bury St. Edmund there too. As a result, maybe the children were out in the fields tending the flocks when they heard the Abbey bells chiming. They thought that it was a pretty sound and they started following it, moving towards the Abbey and they got lost and overshot the Abbey and ended up in the fields outside Woolpit. What about the cave they said the girl went through? There are caves in the area, um, like Horinger Court Caves and Glen Chalk Caves, both of which are in Bury St. Edmunds. Now, I haven't been able to find a lot of information about the local caves, and some of them may actually be mining tunnels that were used to extract chalk from the local chalk deposits. Uh, some of them may have originally been chalk caves that were then expanded by the mining. But I'm guessing that in the 1100s, there were naturally occurring uh chalk or other caves in the area, as suggested by the fact that the girl learned the word for them, and nobody seemed to have a problem with this part of her story. So the children may well have entered such a cave while they were playing hooky from minding the flock. They may have been in the cave when they heard the bells of the abbey echoing in it. They may have even come out a different entrance than they went in, adding to their being lost. But it doesn't seem implausible that they went into a cave, either that or they could have fallen or climbed down into a wolf pit from which the harvesters may have seen them emerge. And the wolf pit got distorted in the tellings into a cave. What about the fact that the children didn't speak English? Great Britain has a lot of local dialects which aren't always easily mutually intelligible. And this was 
even greater in the past when people didn't move around very much. I remember once reading a book on linguistics where some travelers from one part of England had arrived. This was centuries ago, but travelers from one part of England had arrived in another part of England and were trying to order something to eat. They requested eggies or eggs, as we would say today. But the local who was serving them apologized and said she didn't speak any French. So she didn't recognize the word eggs the way they were pronouncing it in this different English dialect. But if Fordham St. Martin was only eight miles from Woolpit as the crow flies, you wouldn't expect the dialect to shift so much in that distance that it wouldn't be understandable by the locals. No, you wouldn't. But there were other languages being spoken in England at the time. In particular, the language of the royal court was French because the Normans had conquered England in 1066, around a century earlier. So if the children were from the upper class, they might have known French, but not the Middle English that the natives spoke. Wouldn't the locals have recognized French since since it was the language of their new overlords? Very probably, especially if they were being boarded in the house of a knight. Also, it's unlikely that if they had upper class parents that they would have remained undiscovered in such a nearby village or that they would have been out tending sheep in the first place. But they could have been the children of some other kind of foreigner. And there was a nearby community community of foreigners, because Fornham St. Martin was the home of a group of Flemish immigrants. Flemish is a version of Dutch that is spoken in modern Belgium, and in the 1100s, a large number of Flemish immigrants had moved to England. They weren't always welcome, and they were persecuted by King Henry II. In fact, many were killed near Bury St. Edmunds on October 17th, 1173, during the Battle of Fornham. The English Earl of Leicester had invaded England with a force of Flemish mercenaries, and they got caught crossing the River Lark near Fornham St. Martin, and many of them were killed. Local peasants also got involved, and there was a group of Flemish fullers at Fornham St. Martin. Now, fullers are people who are involved in the process of making cloth out of wool, and that would fit with the children's story that they had been tending sheep. Also, note that the Battle of Fornham occurred in October 1173, and William of Newburgh said that the children appeared at harvest time, which is in late September or October. I've seen speculation that King Stephen may have also persecuted the Flemish immigrants, but Ralph of Coggeshall's interview with a living knight suggests that they may have appeared in the reign of Henry II. And the fact that Henry II is known to have persecuted the Flemish in the area, and the fact that the Battle of Fornham occurred right at this location in October is very suggestive. So the green children may have been sheep-tending Flemish immigrants whose language would not have been understood by the Middle English-speaking locals. Wouldn't the locals have had some exposure to Flemish due to the recent conflict? Perhaps, but not necessarily enough to recognize it on hearing it, especially from scared children who kept their mouths shut out of fear of being persecuted. And the Flemish immigrants were in a different village and the hostilities didn't occur in Wolfpit itself. So Flemish immigrants and their language may have just bypassed the village. How would we explain the unusual green hue of the children's skin? There are conditions that can produce this. One that occurred to me right off the bat is jaundice, which is a condition that can cause the skin to appear yellow or yellow-green. Jaundice is caused by the body producing an excessive amount of bilirubin, which is a yellowish pigment produced by the liver. So jaundice could be an explanation that could possibly be described as producing greenish skin in the children. 
Do you think that's the correct explanation? Actually, no. Uh, this is an example of me thinking of something, but also rejecting it, despite the fact it was my own idea. Uh, once again, I don't accept an idea just because it's mine. I try to cross-examine it as rigorously as I do all the other ideas. And there are four reasons that I would reject the jaundice hypothesis. First, bilirubin is a skin irritant, and one of the most common symptoms accompanying jaundice is itching. But we don't have reports that the children were scratching themselves a lot. And there are other symptoms associated with jaundice that aren't reported in the case of the children. Second, jaundice has a bunch of possible causes, but it usually affects only one person at a time. And here it affected both the girl and her younger brother. Now, there are some genetic conditions that can produce jaundice, and that could have affected them both. But if this were simply due to genetics, we wouldn't expect the children to get better. And the two accounts we have report one or both of them reacquiring normal skin color. Third, the locals noticed that they didn't eat a normal diet when they first arrived and rejected the food that was given them. But after they got accommodated to their new surroundings and began eating a regular diet, the greenish skin hue went away. That suggests that the cause of the coloration was dietary, and diet is not typically a cause of jaundice, unless you're engaged in excessive alcohol consumption, which the children apparently weren't. Fourth and finally, there's another condition that fits the facts better than the jaundice hypothesis. And what's that? What else would explain the Woolpit children's skin coloration? At the time, it was referred to as green sickness. Later, it was called chlorosis from the Greek word chloros, meaning green. So chlorosis is green osis or green sickness. It's been discussed since ancient times, and it's been attributed to a number of causes and gone by a number of names over the centuries. But today, its causes are better understood, and its modern name is hypochromic anemia. In Greek, hupa means under, chroma means color, and anaimos means bloodless. So hypochromic anemia is a deficiency in the blood that results in the blood cells not having enough color. In other words, they're not red enough. And in people of European ancestry, that means their skin looks more pale than it should. So people suffering from hypochromic anemia are sometimes said to have pale or greenish coloration to their skin, like the green children of Woolpit. How does this diagnosis fit the other facts we know about the children? Quite well. In the first place, hypochromic anemia can be caused by diet. Specifically, it can be caused by a deficiency of vitamin B6, which can be associated with a problem involving element 26, or iron. You can either fail to get enough iron in your diet, or you may not be absorbing enough iron in your diet, or you may be losing too much iron due to something like blood loss. But one way or another, if you're not getting enough iron into your metabolism, you may get a form of anemia that results in your blood cells not being red enough. When that happens, European skin appears paler than it should, resulting in the historic name green sickness. And it can be caused by an unusual diet, like the children were said to eat at first. And if so, it can be cured by eating a regular diet, like what happened when the green children uh, began a dietary change and their skin color returned to normal. Furthermore, hypochromic anemia is associated with other symptoms that do match what the children were reported to have. What other symptoms beside the green skin, the greenish skin color did they exhibit? One of the things they were observed to do was reject most of the food that was set before them. Now, part of that could have been due to the fact that if they were Flemish, they may not have been raised to eat English cuisine. And in this case, they may have rejected some dishes that were too strange for their palates. And that could be part of it. They just didn't want to eat strange foreign food. But it may have only been part of why, because among the symptoms of hypochromic anemia are dyspepsia and decreased appetite. 
Dyspepsia means indigestion or upset stomach, and that could make you want to refuse food, especially if it looks like complex foreign food that might further upset your already upset stomach. And if your hyperchromic anemia is depressing your appetite, that will also reduce your desire to eat what's set before you, especially if it looks complex and foreign. It's understandable that the children suffering from this condition might want to eat only simple natural foods like beans taken directly from the pod, even if the children weren't experienced enough with farming to know how to get the beans out of the bean plant. Are there other symptoms that children display that are consistent with hyperchromic anemia? Yes, other symptoms include a lack of energy and shortness of breath. Both of those could have been involved in why the children didn't succeed in running away from the harvesters that caught them, given that children can often run faster than adult men. And if they were lacking energy and short of breath, it could account for why the girl said they needed to lie down after they came out of the cave. Further, one of the accounts said that before he passed away, the boy displayed a chronic lack of energy and depression, so that's also consistent with hypochromic anemia. But they didn't display the itchiness that's often associated with jaundice, so it looks like the, their symptoms were more consistent with hypochromic anemia than with jaundice. How would they have acquired this form of dietary anemia? I've seen one suggestion that said they could have stayed in the woods for a long time, living rough, so that they had a long-term iron deficiency. But I find this implausible, at least without a significant adjustment to the scenario, because if they came from Forn of St. Martin, which is just eight miles from Woolpit, then they could have walked there in just three hours. I mean, even if they dawdled and wandered around a lot, they wouldn't have been alone long enough to develop an iron deficiency. It actually takes months to develop an iron deficiency because our bodies use iron quite slowly. So unless the children had been alone and living rough for months, this isn't a likely explanation. More likely, their dietary deficiency was something that dated back to the time when they were living with their father in Fornham St. Martin. And the dietary deficiency was something longstanding. It's not surprising, given that good nutrition often has not been available in historical times. What about the fact the girl said that the people where she came from also had greenish skin? Did the people in Fornham St. Martin, or at least the Flemish immigrants there, also have hypochromic anemia? Not so far as I know. I don't know of any historical sources saying that. It's possible that this element of the story was misreported, though I also can think of several other possibilities. One is that the girl's family and perhaps some of the others had the anemia, either due to simply a dietary deficiency or perhaps in combination with genetic factors that made them prone to this condition. In this case, it wouldn't be that everybody where they came from had the coloration. She may have just said that some people did, and it got taken to mean that everybody did. A second possibility is that there was a greater misunderstanding. What the girl may have actually said was that people where she came from looked like she did, and this was misunderstood to mean that they were greenish. But she may have only meant that People looked similar to her and her brother, for example, you know, wearing the same kind of unusual clothing or having similar facial features and hair color, not that their skin was specifically green, especially if the children didn't always have this coloration and had only acquired it recently and slowly. They may not have noticed their skin color changed, so they said, yeah, everybody looks like us. But there's a third possibility, which is that she was simply lying. Why would she want to lie about that? Oh, possibly because she just wanted to play a joke on the adults around her, like we mentioned before, but also possibly because she was afraid of the adults around her. After all, they were English and the kids were Flemish. If this happened in October of 1173 after the Battle of Fornham, the kids may have seen English knights and peasants killing or attacking the Flemish mercenaries and the Flemish fullers. Even if it wasn't directly after the battle, they could have been aware of the persecution 
of the Flemish immigrants that happened during the reign of Henry II. And some may have speculated that might have occurred also during the reign of King Stephen. Or they just may have been aware of tensions between the English and Flemish communities. But one way or another, they may have had very good reason not to want to be identified as Flemish children. It is quite possible they were refugees, and their father, whose flocks they said they were tending, may have been killed. And so they may have had very good reason not to want to be identified as Flemish children. In that case, they would be incentivized to exaggerate and make up elements of their story, like coming from a twilight land where everyone had greenish skin. Assuming those elements of the story are being accurately reported, the children could have exaggerated or made up those elements to convey the impression that they were fairy children who had stumbled into man's world. So don't bother trying to send them home, and most certainly don't bother thinking of them as Flemish children who you might want to persecute or murder. If they were trying to make themselves sound like fairy children, why would they admit they came from a land where St. Martin was venerated, where... Fornum St. Martin was just eight miles away. They, or the girl, may have developed that approach slowly over time as she learned English. The admission that they came from where St. Martin was venerated may have come early before she hit on the fairy idea. Ultimately, I can't say the exact reason for each element of the story because I can't say exactly which elements of the story the children reported versus which were misreported or misunderstood. But whether or not the girl tried to pass them off as fairy children, the Flemish refugee hypothesis explains a lot of the facts in this case, including the children's early behavior. It explains why they would try to flee from the harvesters who captured them. It would explain why they couldn't speak English. It would explain why they cried upon being taken to the house of an English knight. It could explain why they wouldn't want to eat the English food set before them, especially if English people had just been killing their relatives and neighbors. It could explain why they would eat beans from a freshly cut bean plant taken from the ground because that food wouldn't be poisoned. It explains why they only slowly starting eating regular English cuisine, and it would explain why their father never came to, found, to find them because he may have been dead. So I think there's a good chance that the children were Flemish refugees who were suffering a nutritional deficiency. Hmm. So what can we say about the green children of Woolpit from the faith perspective? Not a lot. Uh, even if they were fairies or aliens or interdimensionals or dwellers from an underground civilization, they'd still be God's children. And the fact they were so human would make even more of the standard theological answers apply to them. The one question of a doctrinal nature that occurs to me is about the baptism they received. Either both of them, according to William of Newburgh's account, or just the girl, according to Ralph of Cogasol's account, were baptized. Now, baptism is a sacrament that can only be received once because it makes a permanent mark on the soul. So you shouldn't baptize people more than once. There are other sacraments to take care of their post-baptismal needs. If the Flemish refugee hypothesis is true, then the children were probably already baptized when they were infants. That's even more likely given the fact they knew about churches and St. Martin. If they had been found as newborns, it would have been more reasonable to baptize them, though even in this period of Christian history, you'd need to do so conditionally. That is, you'd need to baptize them using a formula like, if you are not already baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Giving a conditional baptism is what you need to do when you're not sure whether someone is validly baptized. So when these kids showed up and people weren't sure if they were baptized, it would have been a good idea to give them a conditional baptism if they couldn't remember or communicate the fact that they'd already been baptized since they didn't you know, know English. And that may have been exactly what happened. They may have been given a conditional baptism, in which case that was the right thing to do. Is there anything else we should say before we go? 
I'd like to let the listeners know about another very similar case. If you read literature on mysterious subjects like this, you may also read about another pair of similar children who were found in 1887 in the Spanish village of Banjos. Uh, For example, this account appears in the 1965 book Strange Destinies by author John Macklin, and it's been picked up by other books and websites, too. But the story is a total fraud. John Macklin apparently lifted the story of the Green Children of Woolpit wholesale and set it in Spain 800 years later. He even calls the local man who sheltered the children Ricardo de Calno instead of Richard de Calne. Oh, and uh, there is no village of Banos, Spain. It never existed. So beware of the story of the Green Children of Banos. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Green Children of Woolpit? Based on the two early independent accounts we have from William of Newburgh and Ralph of Cogasol, including the latter's interview with the family that cared for the children, I think we have to take this account seriously. There is nothing in it that would make it too difficult to accept or even too difficult to explain. It is very likely that the Green Children of Woolpit were two Flemish refugees who were suffering from hypochromic anemia caused by a long-standing dietary deficiency. And they came from the area surrounding the village of Fornham St. Martin. This theory explains why they were scared of the people who found them, why they were wearing strange clothing, why they didn't speak English, why they didn't want to eat the food they were initially given, either because they were scared of their hosts or because of the dyspepsia and loss of appetite that this anemia causes and why their skin coloration changed back after they started eating regular food. It also explains why, after learning English, the children reported that they came from a Christian area where St. Martin was venerated, and that they walked to Woolpit after hearing church bells and possibly after wandering in one of the local caves. When it comes to the most exotic elements of the story that make people think of fairies, aliens, and similar possibilities, it isn't clear that these have been accurately reported without exaggeration or misunderstanding. And even those elements have possible natural explanations like the ones we've covered, including the possibility that the children exaggerated or made up things to help keep them from being identified as vulnerable Flemish children in an area whose people had just been persecuting and killing the children's Flemish family, friends, and neighbors. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener? We'll have a link to Garth Haslam's uh, uh, book, The Green Children of Woolpit, which is very good. I recommend that. It's also a very short read. Uh, Also, Brian Houghton's book, Hidden Histories. We'll have uh, web articles on the Green Children of Woolpit, on Woolpit itself, on William of Newburgh, on Ralph of Cogasol, on Bury St. Edmund's Abbey, Fornham St. Martin, Jaundice, hypochromic anemia, fulling, which is what fullers do, and also on the Battle of Fornham. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what mysterious headlines can we offer? Well, even though it doesn't look like the green children came from outer space, we do have an astronomy theme uh, today. So there's been studies of galactic behavior going on for a long time, and some galaxies don't play with well with others. Um, We'll have a link to a story about how big galaxies beat up small galaxies and steal their dark matter. So just like big kids may beat up little kids and steal their lunch money, big galaxies actually end up beating up small galaxies and stealing their dark matter. And you'll have an interesting uh, article at that link. Also, Jesuits have discovered a new planet. Uh, because Jesuits have been interested in astronomy for centuries, and they run um, an astronomy program with its own observatory in Arizona, and they have found a new planet outside the orbit of Pluto. 
Unfortunately, because of all the science denialism in the International Astronomical Union right now, Pluto is not recognized as a planet, and this is just smaller than Pluto, so it's still really a planet. But they're calling it a trans-Neptunian object because it's outside of the orbit of Neptune. And of course, it is a trans-Neptunian object. It is outside the orbit of Neptune, and it's also a planet because it's round and it's not glowing. Um in any event, you can read about the new Jesuit discovery, and uh, it also may help us find the additional body in the outer solar system that the science deniers are calling Planet Nine, uh, because there is some evidence that there's a bigger planet out there, which, because of their refusal to face the obvious, they don't think of as they don't think of Pluto and these other bodies as planets. And so they think, oh, the one after Neptune must be the undiscovered planet nine. And hopefully there is a bigger body out there. But even if there's not, you can enjoy the new uh, information about the Jesuits discovering a planet. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it from us. We would love to hear your theories about the green children of Woolpit. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or by calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. They've really brought a lot of additional value to the video version of the podcast. If you haven't seen that, by all means, definitely go to YouTube. Uh, you can find my channel by going to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. That's J-I-M-M-Y-A-K-I-N. Uh, but go to YouTube.com slash Jimmy Aiken and check out the video version of the podcast and see all the great work that Oasis Studio 7 has been doing on it. And while you're there, I'm trying to grow my channel. So please uh, hit the uh, subscribe button and the bell notification so that you'll hear about it whenever we release a new video. And I'd really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, next time, having covered green children, we're going to be talking about blue orbs. Uh, specifically, we're going to be giving you an update about one of the phenomena reported at Skinwalker Ranch, the blue panic orbs that have been said to incinerate dogs. As you'll hear, the blue panic orbs haven't just been seen on Skinwalker Ranch. They have been seen elsewhere, and they have injured not only dogs, but people as well. Wow. So, uh, and back to Skinwalker, at least... Uh, in in refer referring to it, which is what I'm excited about. So, yeah. <laughs> excellent. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or at Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. That helps us grow our community and reach more listeners. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines in our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Raising the Bets. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S.